0: You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City.
1: And this is Prashant parmas from Washington, D.C.
0: Welcome back, Prashant. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Looking forward to uh, chatting again. It's been a while since we've done a podcast together, Mm -hmm. um, partly due to uh, traveling on both our parts. Uh, I was recently uh, on a uh, short trip to Tokyo. I happened to be there during the uh, inter-Korean summit, the fifth inter-Korean summit, the third one between Moon Jae-in and and Kim Jong-un. And I do want to talk a bit about that summit uh, today with you. Uh, But I do want to ask you about your trip uh, because you were in South Korea uh, right before the uh, inter-Korean summit. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you're doing there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I was there primarily to attend the Seoul Defense Dialogue, uh, this year's iteration of it. Um, But as you mentioned, I mean, the timing was so close to the inter-Korean summit that a lot of folks, even though there were discussion of a broad array of security issues, there was discussion on cybersecurity, maritime security, um, some discussion, limited discussion about geopolitics and counterterrorism. The main focus was really on on you know what the stakes were for inter-Korean summit, and a lot of the observers who were there, myself included, um, were trying to determine you know what what are the prospects for that, and then also, as South Korea deals with uh, that issue, which is clearly a big priority for the Moon government, how is that affecting some of their other engagements with neighboring countries, right? This this the new southern policy they've talked about, and some of their other uh, foreign policy priorities, and of course. The other thing that was really interesting, and I'm sure you, you picked this up in your trip too in Japan and other travels, is, you know, as much as we wanted to talk about what was going on there, there were questions about uh, the U.S. side and some of the developments that were coming up, you know, Bob Woodward's book and, you know, all, all these other developments and what this all means for the Trump administration and U.S. foreign policy with the midterms and such.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, a common theme on all my trips to Asia since January 2017 has been, you know a lot of questions about what's really happening mm-hmm. in the United States. I think people are quite rightly curious about that. Um, but you know, I do want to talk about uh the outcomes of this inter Korean summit. Um, so the context for the summit, I think, is quite important to uh talk about, uh, talk a bit about, right? So we had a complete logjam in US North Korea talks quite predictably, I might add. Um, it actually sort of seemed inevitable the moment Mike Pompeo left Pyongyang in early July that. This was where things would go. Um, And I'd said as early as, you know, mid-July that there would probably be a second Trump-Kim summit because of what the North Koreans were saying, which was that only the leaders could really make progress. But yeah, you know, by the end of August, Trump cancels Pompeo's scheduled trip to Pyongyang after receiving a letter from Kim Jong-chol, Pompeo's negotiating counterpart in North Korea. The implication was clear. Trump had apparently promised Kim Jong-un an end-of-war declaration, a declaration to end the Korean War by potentially the end of July, and obviously the United States didn't follow through with that, which the North Koreans saw as a lack of seriousness and uh, a lack of interest in really pursuing serious talks. So this really left everything up to Moon Jae-in to clean up. And Moon's gotten quite good at cleaning up after uh, Trump uh, and after the US-North Korea negotiating process. He did it once in late May, let's not forget, to actually rescue the summit. Uh, the moment after Donald Trump first canceled the Singapore summit, it was Moon Jae-in who incredibly staged a second inter-Korean summit with Kim Jong-un on an ad hoc basis to iron out the differences. And Moon clearly had one mission out of this inter-Korean summit. Uh, I mean, he accomplished quite a bit. We can talk a bit about all the results. Um, It's probably a bit out of the scope of our podcast really given that there were so many developments on the inter-korean front but really the big big issue was to take something with him to new york where he was headed after pyongyang to show donald trump that progress on the denuclearization issue was still happening and that negotiations with north korea were worth carrying forward and i have to say i mean at a high level i think the sort of public relations component of this was very handled very well by moon um he was in new york for UN week met with trump and I think he walked away having completely salvaged this process. Uh, he, uh, you know, uh, I've said that he effectively defibrillated the uh, dying or dead uh, U.S.-North Korea negotiating process. So for now, we're back on track. Pompeo's scheduled to go back. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was your uh, overall impression, I guess, uh, of, the, of the big results out of the summit? Maybe let's start with the denuclearization outcomes, and then we can move on to talking about some of the other things, including the, the military uh, agreement, which is quite significant.
1: Mhm yeah i mean i i think uh, the the sense that you gave was was correct which is that on on notions like denuclearization or or even sort of a, a reduction in in what the north koreans have been doing we haven't really seen a lot of progress right so from the us side we've gotten a sort of sense of a rough timeline notions that you know whether it's by 2021 or What they expect out of North Korea, there seems to be shifting goalposts from the U.S. side. And it does seem like the broader dynamics of this is that Moon, who's been always very anxious to move through the peace process, is happy to go through with some of the inter-Korean peace dynamics, even though progress on denuclearization kind of slows down. We haven't really seen a lot of that from the North Koreans. And I think you noted in your piece that you wrote for us You have to be very careful about what the North Koreans promise and and don't promise with respect to this case, because they have a a record of um, either cheating or however you want to characterize it, going back on previous disagreements or specifically saying that they will do something in a very limited sense, but then the scope of the inspections are quite limited, or it's only with respect to one facility and then they do something somewhere else. So it's one of those things where we're caught in a sense of generality with a lot with not a lot of movement, but we're seeing Moon and and the North Koreans move forward on the inter-Korean piece. So I guess um, going back to what you said earlier about Moon and how he's trying to revive the process, one of the interesting things going forward is how long can the North Koreans, the South Koreans, and and the U.S. and Trump be happy with the calibration of measures that are designed to keep Mm -hmm. all of these parties happy and keep the process moving forward. So far, we've seen that but my sense is that, you know, we might be nearing a process somewhere further down the road where that won't be the case. And that will be the key point at which, you know, be interesting to see what happens.
0: Yeah, no, let's talk a little bit more about that. I mean, maybe on a little bit more of a technical level. Um, so, you know, I think the history of U.S.-North Korea negotiations or generally negotiations with North Korea says that, um, teaches us at least that. It doesn't matter what you think the North Koreans have agreed to or what their interpretations are. Um, I really, at the end of the day, you want to take a very careful, close look at the texts that are agreed to between the two sides. right? I think especially this was a big lesson taken away from the 2012 leap day agreement uh, when the Obama administration and uh, North Korea had very different definitions of what exactly... A missile launch meant right. The North Koreans mm-hmm. launched a satellite, arguing that that was a civilian, peaceful thing, and not a missile launch. The Obama administration disagreed. The agreement fell apart. But anyways, to come back to the latest inter-Korean agreement, right? This is the first agreement this year. Uh, Kim Jong Un has signed his name onto three significant documents with South Korea. Uh, with um, t- t- two of them now with South Korea, one of them with the United States. So the Panmunjom Declaration on April 27th and the June 12th Singapore Declaration saw Kim Jong-un agree to the vague objective of complete denuclearization, right? There were no specific references to any particular sites or anything like that. After the Singapore summit uh, occurred, uh, Donald Trump gave a press conference at the Capella Hotel in Singapore, and he, he said that there was a verbal agreement on the issue of the missile engine test stand at the site known as Tongchangri or or Sohei. um and he said that the north koreans would dismantle this site in mid-july we start to see activity at that site um 38 north uh, analyst joe bermudez is the first to spot it and he says that look the north koreans have started dismantling it um so that's good the north koreans were following through and this is still you know along that timeline when the north koreans were still expecting the united states to follow through on the end of war declaration and then we sort of see that dismantlement activity slow down And obviously, you know, to go back to what I said uh, earlier about the collapse of the process later, yada yada, and now Moon Jae-in goes and he gets this agreement out, and Section 5 of this Pyongyang Declaration, the Inter-Korean Pyongyang Declaration of 2018, includes so far this year the most specific references to any kind of sites, right? So section 5.1 commits North Korea to permanently dismantle its Dongchangri missile engine test site and launch platform, right? So this is also where North Korea has been conducting its most recent satellite launches. It has another site on the northwestern side of the country called Tonghae that it hasn't used since 2009, but the Sohae site has been where, for example, the February 2016 satellite launch took place, and it's a, it's a pretty important piece of Um, North Korea's space program and certainly has important propaganda value, if nothing else. So that is good to see. It is concrete progress. However, it is not not what is generally meant by denuclearization, right? This does not limit North Korea's arsenal. It does not limit North Korea's ability to build out its missiles, as Kim Jong-un called for in his New Year's Day address this year. Uh, And it doesn't really limit the space program. You know, they still have that site that they haven't used since 2009 that they could refurbish and begin using again if things do end up going sideways after they dismantle Sohei. They could do what Israel and uh, China has done with some missile um, satellite launches, which has moved to mobile launchers, uh, effectively repurposing its intercontinental range ballistic missiles to serve as satellite launchers. So there are a lot of ways that North Korea can kind of deal with this, but... Obviously, these are technical details and certainly not something that we're going to see in the headlines coming out of this, right? The headline is that North Korea is tearing down this site that we have all seen pictures of and we've all seen space launches take out of. So it's a very nice headline. It's a very nice public relations concession. And it appears to have kept the process alive, right? Donald Trump is happy with this. And this is effectively my sort of cynical take on the denuclearization process that's happening this year is that North Korea is offering up these kind of high PR value concessions and it's probably going to keep doing them, you know, maybe staggering them out by three or four months and it's going to offer up something. Maybe we will eventually get that Northwestern test site at Tonghe that will be taken down maybe at the end of next year as another gesture to keep the process alive. But really none of this is concrete denuclearization, at least not in the way that the United States talks about it, which is the final fully verified denuclearization of North Korea. And, you know, there's a separate policy discussion about whether that objective is even the right one to be pursuing with North Korea, given that they haven't even said this year that they want to even explore the possibility of unilateral disarmament. For them, denuclearization means a bilateral process. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second component of that, though, uh, of the inter-Korean agreement was, you know, section two. And this one, I have to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to really rail against, you know, oh the media misreports things, but this one was really, really misreported out there. Uh, you know, that North Korea had agreed to dismantle its nuclear facilities at Yongbyon if the United States takes corresponding measures, right? So it was really kind of framed as a tit for tat, but the text of the agreement, and here's really where the text matters, I think, uh, with this latest inter-Korean agreement is, is so important because in both the Korean and the translation released by North Korea and South Korea, the reference to Yongbyon is as an example of something that might happen. So the exact text is, North Korea expressed its willingness to continue to take additional measures, comma, such as the permanent dismantlement of the nuclear facilities in Yongbyon as the United States takes corresponding measures. So this is not that the United States does X, North Korea does Y. That would be actually quite a remarkable signal, right? I mean, I would say that that's actually a very good move if North Korea said, yeah, we will dismantle all of these things at Yongbyon, right? It's it's also left ambiguous in the text of the agreement what the Yongbyon nuclear facilities actually mean. And here's actually an important difference between the translations released by South Korea and North Korea. The South Koreans pluralize facilities at Yongbyon, but the North Koreans say facility, um, which tells you a bit about the differences in interpretation. You know, translations are actually useful in that regard. They can tell you a bit about how both sides interpret the agreement. Um, But anyways, before I get too rambly, I mean, that's my overall take here. I mean, what is happening is really a very limited form of quote-unquote denuclearizations. It's just enough to allow Moon Jae-in to keep his inter-Korean peace process alive and keep U.S.-North Korea talks going without a return of, of, uh, to the fire and fury that we saw in August 2017. And obviously nobody wants to go back to that, but it's not real denuclearization.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think the, the dynamics here for the North Korean side is, is important too, right? I, I think for the North Koreans they probably calculate that they can continue to do these sort of uh, staggered uh, agreements, as you pointed out, right, these staggered concessions or mini concessions, and that they can probably get away with some of that, at least for some time, because, you know, Moon really wants this. And it does seem like Trump, relative to sort of an orthodox or more orthodox U.S. leader, is willing to countenance or at least live with some of these uh, limited concessions because I, I do think that there's an element of this where he thinks, I mean, this is good for him. I mean, he's continuing to parade this as, oh, it's great. You know, the U.S. and North Korea are, are going on fine. You know, I was the one who was playing a role in this. And the North Koreans are keen to kind of stoke his ego too, right, in that respect. So, and I guess the question goes back to what you said earlier, which is when, all, when push comes to shove and we have these concessions over time, you know, where do we stand on inter-Korean relations, which is a separate part of this? And then where do we stand on North Korea's engagement internationally and domestically, which I think, you know, it seems Kim wants to push in that full swing. Mm -hmm. And then where do we stand on denuclearization? And it seems like, you know, from what we've suggested so far, denuclearization is going to significantly lag those other aspects, right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah, and it's really been remarkable to see Moon Jae-in market these concessions in New York uh, this past Mm -hmm. week um i mean you know listening to moon's interview for example with fox news his address at the council on foreign relations here uh it's hard not to get the sense that moon is exaggerating um considerably about what north korea is giving up right i mean he he flat out implied that the dismantlement of the site at Sohei means that north korea cannot conduct long-range missile tests anymore which is just false because they have road mobile launchers and they can continue to launch missiles from wherever they please in the country, really. They don't need this one specific site, uh, right? It's been described as a launch pad, but that's only the case for satellite launches. And uh, separately, uh, we've seen multiple statements, including from the Blue House spokesperson, implying that Yongbyon, once Yongbyon's gone, North Korea's ability to produce nuclear materials is effectively gone. Again, that's not true, right? We um, I reported to diplomat about the confidential site known as Kangsong by the U.S. intelligence community. That's thought to exist. Another site is thought to exist for uranium enrichment. Uh, Yongbyon is no longer the only sort of source of nuclear materials um, enrichment and production in in North Korea. Uh, yeah. So you know those things matter uh, because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I'm actually not a maximalist on the denuclearization issue. So if we if we're honest about what we're doing, I think that's a good thing, right? And what is happening right now is effectively North Korea, as we saw with the military parade when it didn't show off any nuclear-capable assets on September 9th, North Korea is giving its nuclear program a much lower profile as it's focusing on economic development. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially after last year, it declared its deterrent complete, so now it's behaving like a more normal nuclear country. It's not showing off its missiles every a couple weeks and launching them over uh, Japan or what have you. Uh, but as it's doing that, The process right now is going to allow North Korea to simply keep what it has and just give up these little things. But anyways, I think we've talked enough about denuclearization. We can come back to this issue, but maybe once we have another Pompeo trip. Uh, Mm -hmm. Although I do think Pompeo's trip to Pyongyang, uh, when it happens, is going to be about logistics and agenda items for the second Trump-Kim summit. I don't think it will be a serious... um, you know, brass tax negotiation session, simply because I think we've seen that Pompeo, uh, the North Koreans don't think that Pompeo is the person to have those talks with. I think that's the big lesson to come out of the July uh, exchange and certainly what we've seen after that. Um, but let's go talk about the inter-Korean stuff because I think that's really important and it gets left out a lot in a lot of the press coverage that we see of inter-Korean issues in the West, which does get bogged down with the nuclear issue. Um, So this agreement on military issues, I think, is really significant, Prashant. Um, And you know, it's funny that the Seoul Defense Dialogue happened right before they agreed to this agreement. Uh, So this has been in the works all summer, uh, really. There have been working-level talks at the demilitarized zone between military representatives of the Korean People's Army and the South Korean, um, Republic of Korea Armed Forces uh, at a high level. Regardless of what happened at this inter-Korean summit, it was always going to end in a major military CBM agreement. This was always kind of in the cards. I think the two Koreas could have released it earlier, but they decided to hang on to it as a positive concession to come out of the inter-Korean summit. Uh, And the agreement is is controversial. Uh, So I don't know if you heard about this at the defense dialogue. But when I was in Seoul, I had a lot of conversations with retired South Korean military officers about sort of conventional arms control and CBMs with North Korea. And there were concessions, um, you know, uh, serious concerns about things like a no fly zone, uh, because a no fly zone really is an asymmetric exchange because South Korea has considerably more advanced aerial intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities compared to north korea so this new no-fly zone that's been implemented on either side of the dmz really is seen by some south koreans as a serious giveaway to north korea and there are concerns that this could actually be destabilizing in some ways but you know i think the maritime uh, component of this uh is is quite positive along the northern limit line in the um in the west sea and um the removal of ground posts um, a guard post from the demilitarized zone is also another positive move um, so really, I think what we're seeing here is the two Koreas have made some serious progress on reducing conventional military tensions. Uh, if, a, if a new Korean war does start, it's likely to begin with some kind of conventional exchange. Uh, so these are positive moves. But another thing that I think was left out of this process that we're starting to see the hints of is that uh, United Nations Command um, and and U.S. Forces Korea appear not to have been consulted very seriously on this agreement and we're starting to see the uh, inklings of that. We just had a confirmation hearing for General uh, Robert Abrams, who will become the next uh, commander of U.S. Forces Korea after General Vincent Brooks steps down, and he implied that that wasn't really part of the process, and that might cause issues because the inter-Korean agreement is binding on the two Koreas, but it doesn't necessarily stop U.S. uh, forces in Korea from using, let's say, aerial drones or the U-2 stationed at Osan Air Base to conduct surveillance of North Korea, and that could actually cause a crisis if the North Koreans can't tell what's a U.S. asset and what's a South Korean asset. It could be seen as a violation of the uh, no-fly zone, for instance. So there are alliance coordination issues here that do concern me a little bit. But I think the agreement overall is is a good step forward and certainly sets up the kind of confidence building that's necessary for the peace process to carry forward. Um, I don't know if you had any uh, insights from the defense dialogue about, about some of this uh, conventional uh, confidence building stuff, Prashant
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think you know that, as you pointed out, this is something that was worked on uh, for quite a while um and and you're right to I think point to concerns among both um you know some uh, some sort of uh, i guess some segment, I guess of uh, the defense establishment in in South Korea, and as well as um some u s former officials and also current u s officials about what all of this means, right? At one level, the confidence building measures when you have military escalation, potential confrontation, it's kind of a a given that you need these things. So it's good that they're moving forward with this sort of inter-Korean piece. But uh, there are also several elements of these that are concerning. I mean, the first is, as you noted, right, alliance coordination with respect to the United States and and South Korea. You're still continuing to hear, right, like some elements about, you know, what does all of this mean for the future of the US military presence? How will these things be coordinated? Um, so that's one angle. The second is the sort of, I guess we shouldn't assume uh, that just because Moon is quite early on in his term, that the domest- domestic consensus around uh, and in South Korea with respect to this pursuit of inter-Korean peace wouldn't necessarily sour um, you know, further into his term. If we see the North Koreans revert back to their behavior or their sort of comes up sort of elements of opposition, right? So, you know, when I was in South Korea, and even before that, I mean, there have been concerns about everything from, you know, what is the cost that South Korea is preparing to bear with respect to inter-Korean, you know, unification potentially forward, and also inter-Korean peace. There's all concerns about what the North Koreans are doing and the moving goalposts with respect to denuclearization. And there's that domestic debate in South Korea, which I think is important to keep in mind. And then one other element, um, you know, that, that... we should touch on also is this notion of you know there's an understanding that this inter-korean process is going to lead to economic support from south korea to north korea eventually right and there and that brings into bear another element of the discussion we've we've talked about in the podcast before which is south korea's international obligations right with respect to the united nations and and, and the like and i guess as we move further along we're going to see all of these tension points come come to bear whether it's with the united states whether it's with international obligations or it's sort of domestic pressure points within south korea i still think i mean the moon government if anything when i was when i was in seoul i, I came away you know very clear that they're you know pursuing this full swing uh, ahead and you know full steam ahead for all of this and but i'm not sure if you know this is going to continue to be the case moving ahead, because I suspect that, you know, with North Korea, you should always be very cautious about this linear trajectory of any kind of movement, right?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and that's really the sense that I got in South Korea too. I mean, the the movement on the sanctions busting front has actually been quite interesting to observe. Um, I think, you know, over the summer after the Singapore summit, uh, representatives of the Blue House in South Korea were quite clear that uh, they recognized that cooperation had limits under the international sanctions regime against Pyongyang. But I think now we're sort of seeing the South Koreans uh, inevitably pushing through that, right? I mean, the opening Mm -hmm. of the joint liaison office in Kaesong was a big move uh, for them, uh, which the United States alleged was in violation of international sanctions. The South Koreans disagreed. They said it was effectively a uh, consular privilege as a sort of diplomatic facility between the two Koreas. Uh, But now, you know, the resumption of... uh, Tours to um, Mount Kumgang, for example, risks violating um, sanctions on bulk cash transfers to North Korea. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right that there are all these sort of pressure points converging. Um, and Moon Jae in is going into this whole process, I mean, with with the very best of intentions, right? He has been, since day one in office, since May, right before North Korea tested its Wasong 12 and its ICBM just a couple months later, uh, he's been very clear about the fact that he wants to pursue. A round of inter-Korean peace, sort of taking away the lessons of things that went wrong in 2000 and 2007. He was on the front lines in 2007 as, as chief of staff to Roh uh, moo the former uh, South Korean president at the time, um, and clearly he's had success. Uh, I think this is an inter, uh, you know, unprecedented period of inter-Korean. Engagement uh, with three summits and the kinds of things that the two leaders are talking about and certainly I mean symbolically You know, we haven't even talked about the fact that Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in made a visit to Mount paek together (laughs) Which was really an incredible moment. I mean, it's really hard not to look at that and you know sort of feel like um, You know this dream of unification that the two Koreas have had for so long uh, is really, you know, alive in a way that it hasn't been uh, for a while but But, you know, um, hope is not necessarily a a strategy, uh, especially with these nagging issues that are are very serious with North Korea. Right. I mean, the international community, including South Korea, I mean, frankly, hasn't recalibrated its view on the denuclearization issue. Right. Um, Everybody will sort of privately, at least independent folks who aren't part of government, privately admit that they don't expect North Korea to necessarily give up its weapons in the short term. But yet all of all uh, all of what's going on right now with short term policymaking is sort of premised around this idea of denuclearization. And it's good to see Pompeo saying uh, recently that there's no particularly pressing timeline, contrary to John Bolton's sort of one year pledge. Um, but really, I think, you know, there are all these walls that are going to have to be um, jumped over if this process is to move forward. And some of them might just be a little bit too high, uh, including you know, sanctions and the, and the denuclearization issue. So I think we're going to get to that pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, So Prashant, let's maybe take five minutes before we close out the podcast. Uh, I do want to talk a bit about something a little bit out of left field. We're going to jump away from the Korean Peninsula and come to the Indian Ocean. Um, We do this on some of the podcast episodes where we talk about a couple separate things to to tie stuff together. Um, But there's really a pretty remarkable development uh, in the Maldives, uh, which saw a presidential election last Sunday, September 23rd. Um, So really, I don't think anybody was expecting Abdullah Yameen, the autocratic-leaning president of the Maldives, to lose to the joint opposition candidate, uh, Ibu Soli, Ibrahim Mohamed Soli. Um, The election turnout was incredible. Almost 90% of the voting-eligible population of the Maldives came out to the polls, delivered 58% of the vote to the opposition candidate, and Yameen, after 36 hours, ended up conceding. Uh, It's really a remarkable moment. Uh, it has geopolitical connotations to it, given that the Maldives has constantly been talked about recently in the context of the uh, so-called competition between India and China in the Indian Ocean. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, what was your uh, broad picture takeaway from this uh, remarkable election result?
1: Well, I, I think the, the big takeaway is, I mean, this immediately kind of, you know, reminded me of the case in Malaysia, right, which is kind of proximate to, to this election outcome, because you had the case where... Um, the establishment had basically, since taking power, had basically stacked virtually all the institutions uh, in its favor, had embarked on a massive opposition crackdown, and had all but ensured that you know, they would win, right? Um, and still, you, know, you had the case that the opposition came to power. So that's the sort of inherent domestic shock uh, that we're experiencing with respect to the Maldives and the election. And then the other part of this is just, I mean, this continuing, as you noted, since this is a geopolitics podcast, this sort of notion that this election might have different uh, fortunes with respect to either China and India, right? So the notion that um, Yamin was very much pro-China and now you could have the emergence of Soli and his new regime that are more towards pro-India or actually maybe less inclined towards China. I do think that, you know, it's important to keep in mind that this is far from a done deal, right? Like we, the formal transfer of power is only taking place in mid-November, mm-hmm. so we'll have to kind of see how that plays out. But I do think this kind of feeds into the discussions we've had previously about um, election outcomes domestically having this sort of geopolitical layer.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I have I've been writing a few things. I, I have a new column coming out for the South China Morning Post on the Maldives election, and I actually caution against reading too much into the geopolitical dynamics here because i really do think unlike unlike you know mahatir and unlike um City Sena in uh, january 2015 a little bit more geographically proximate to the maldives uh, in that election we had a very similar scenario with rajapaksa widely seen as the pro-china president <clears throat> incumbent being sort of taken out in a shock election result by who's definitely more even keeled in his foreign policy outlook uh but yeah you know i think um solely is not about to hit the ground running as sort of an anti-china reviewer of all projects and canceling things i mean the maldives has under um under yamin did undertake serious loans from uh, china for infrastructure projects there's a, a for example a major bridge connecting the capital island of Malé to uh, Hulhule Island nearby, which hosts the, the country's major international airport that China is constructing. I don't see that project being reviewed anytime soon. Um, and really, there's so much domestic work to be done just in terms of rebuilding democratic institutions that I really think this result is really more about the future of democracy in the country, right? I mean, I think that's also a lesson to be taken away from the fact that even if Yamin had planned to stock, um, stack all the institutions in his favor, you can't really do anything about a you know near ninety percent democratic turnout. I mean, people power does have its place in a um, in a democracy with institutions still mostly present, right? I mean, the night before the election, there was actually a police raid on the opposition headquarters uh, in the Maldives. But even despite those efforts, uh, they they couldn't really stem the tide. Uh, for India, I mean, you know, I think th- the result will be very welcome. Uh, historically, Maldives and New Delhi have had a a close relationship, but you know the lesson for india and i think i've seen some indian commentators and analysts now talking about this is you know uh, india sort of had a rocky uh couple years in its neighborhood right nepal is obviously the big uh the big outlier in in the sense that india after the constitution was promulgated in september 2015 ended up cracking down and uh-huh. in, in implementing an unofficial blockade which hurt the ordinary people of nepal and now effectively kp oli the prime minister has sort of taken nepal towards china and you know a lot of indian commentators have blamed new delhi but even there you know domestic dynamics were really driving things i mean in in the same way that maldives the result in the maldives isn't really a result of india doing something right uh, in that very same way you know nepal wasn't necessarily a result of india making terrible missteps i mean we can debate about you know the september 2015 moves and if they could have been handled better but generally i think you know these dynamics do have more to do with internal issues in these countries uh, but yeah, you know, I think the Maldives will have a lot of work to be um, a lot of work to be done. I mean, the big uh, the big issue though is Yameen as a personality was really taking the Maldives in the direction of something of a rogue state, right? I mean, uh, Maldives was kicked out of the Commonwealth, and really China and Saudi Arabia became its two biggest benefactors. Uh, so hopefully, this does help the Maldives sort of recalibrate itself as a more um, as a more normal country, and you know, with the pursuit of a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Now, uh, I think. Countries like the United States, Australia, Japan need to take more of an interest uh, in in a relatively small but strategically located country like the Maldives.
1: Yeah, and, and the the geopolitical um, layer of this, the with respect to China and India, I mean, it, it is important to sort of stress that the governance challenges domestically um, for you know whether it's solely or, or sort of any sort of future regime and government. I mean, these are serious governance challenges that have to be addressed, right? So whether it's corruption or, or infrastructure. And I, I do think the big, you know, question that lies ahead for the Maldives is, you know, I mean you've seen so many regime changes in the past few years. I mean, they just had a coup, right? Back in twenty twelve. Mm-hmm. So what kind of is the future of this country with respect to governance and democracy challenges? And also what's this the future of this coalition that basically is a really an anti yameen coalition, right? Right, I mean, right. A really really unwieldy coalition of folks. How is that going to survive and, you know, and, and persist over time? I suspect that's kind of going to be the big question in the, in the next year or two.
0: Absolutely. Well, covered a lot of ground on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Prashant, thanks a lot for joining me. And um, so for listeners, if you uh, have been listening to the podcast for a while and you like what you hear, make sure you leave a review for us on iTunes. And if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do that too. So you can keep up with uh, future episodes. We'll hopefully be we'll hopefully be back uh, early next week with another episode. Um, but I do have a little bit more travel coming up, so the podcast might be again a little bit off schedule. So apologize for that in advance. But we'll be back soon with more. Thanks a lot for listening.